Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It's not even like a big feminist anthem as much as it is just like a fatigue that every single thing that I do in my life, everything I put forth is approved of or not by white cis men. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining us this week is Buick Audra, a Grammy Award-winning musician, writer, and activist living in Nashville, Tennessee. She is the guitarist, primary songwriter, and vocalist in the melodic heavy duo Friendship Commanders. The band recently released four singles, Stone Child and Your Reign is Over, last year to mark Indigenous Peoples Day, and most recently, Altar and Land of Men. We caught up while she was on tour supporting these singles and en route to recording their third LP at God City with Kurt Ballou. In addition to discussing the singles at length, we dive into sources of inspiration for Buick's activism, the importance of elevating voices of those fighting for social justice, and protest songs. I've shared links to Friendship Commanders and Buick's solo material in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Buick Audra, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. You are back on the road with Friendship Commanders, and you have two singles, Altar and Land of Men. What's it like, one, sharing it with the world, and then also like with audiences like in person? You know, it's... It would be high impact anytime, but uh, certainly it's more high impact now after having been off the road for two years. Uh, exactly this month, we we wrapped our fall 2019 tour in November and thought, oh, we'll be back out on the road in February. You know, we just thought what everybody thought that that life would proceed in 2020, and then it did not. So. It's been this big break during which we have also released music. Um, so now in this on this tour in this live setting, we're playing Altar and Land of Men for the first time for audiences, and then also playing Stone Child and Your Reign Is Over, which were released a year ago that we'd never got to tour on, and then the whole Hold On to Yourself EP, which came out two weeks after the shutdown on April fourth, twenty twenty. We're playing catch up on a lot of levels right now. Catch up is a great way to put it. What's your experience like as a humanistic experience in sharing this material? I mean, there's no sitting on the fence with these songs and especially with the times that we're in socially and politically. What kind of experience is it like for you more than just like a musician, but as a human sharing an expression with people? I'd say it's empowering right now, watching people be able to physically respond to music instead of just having like these digital communications that I've grown so accustomed to having and, you know, playing live streams throughout the pandemic was one way to communicate the work, but we weren't able to receive what anybody else was experiencing on the other side of the screens, you know, so we were just hoping that it landed, but it's very empowering and fortifying to play the two new songs and see people's bodies respond and see their faces respond. And also just to 
see how different the songs are among the audiences right now. You know, Land of Men tends to make people kind of lurch around and whether they've heard it before or not, they have an immediate physical response and Alter kind of makes people bob, you know. But Alter is super emotional for me on a personal level. That one is definitely more autobiographical and sort of from the bone, as it were, whereas Land of Men is a little more like just the fatigue of... of being a woman in a world that not just an industry, but a world that is so, so dominated by the white cisgendered male voice and power and perspective and gaze. And um, that has a big message, but Alter is definitely the one that makes me kind of like buckle at the knees emotionally to perform it for people. I think if you were to put the music of Alter two very different lyrics, people would have a very different response. It's something closer to what I think of like major key metal to a certain extent, like where you're not supposed to feel the things that you feel when you're listening to it. There's a very interesting tension there that you play with, with the pentameter of the song juxtaposed with the lyrical content. How did you sort of arrive at that point where you wanted to, you know, pull those levers together? You know, I didn't make so many conscious decisions in that composition. I sometimes do. That one was born of like kind of a fever pitch. I had had a, a kind of upsetting conversation with someone about friendship commanders and the sort of the road ahead and what we needed to be doing and how I needed to kind of move through the the heavy music space to be accepted in such and such avenues. And I just kind of flipped out. And that song is the response. But I will say that to your point about combining the... It's very, very major. And it's very sort of up-sounding and feeling. I think that's a little bit of a subconscious rebellion against the sort of like, everything has to be doom. Everything has to be minor and dissonant. I wanted to sort of state my case the way that I feel and the, you know, like, and not always bend to the sort of dark expectation of the doom heavy world, which I, I definitely am part of, but we're not all just one thing. And I, I really like hit the wall with that song. That song was written in fewer than 10 minutes. So it just sort of came out exactly as it is. And I just was like, this is the new song, you know? And I thought my bandmate would be like, it's too major, it's too whatever. And he was like, wow, this is really felt. And so we sort of hammered it together at practice. (laughs) It feels like it's a song that came together very quickly and that there was like a really high level of intuition that occurred in the musical construction of the song. And I think that heavy music suffers from this really weird sort of paradox of wanting to be subversive but then everyone's bludgeoning with the same tools. So how subversive is it really? I think to approach it from a different angle is really uh, enjoyable and refreshing. I mean, that's a song I shouldn't have been smiling while I was listening to, but I totally was. Yeah, same. I know. It gives me such a feeling, you know, to play. And even to hear that song, when we got the mixes back from Baloo, I was like, wow, this really like has its own size and shape, you know, in our catalog, it, uh, it fills the space. And for a second, I was like, oh, is it punk? But it's not punk. It's something else. I don't, it's heavy music, but it's, um, yeah, it does have its own thing. And it, it really decided that all on its own. I mean, I just let it through and, and I'm glad I did. I think that the songs that come 
really honestly like that, that don't take a lot of manipulation and a lot of like sort of pruning and grooming end up being the ones that last the longest in our catalog and that we enjoy playing for the longest because they live in our bodies a little better. There's a huge element to the production of that song too. I think you've obviously got a winning combination there with Kurt Ballou and with Brad Boatwright really helping to bring out a lot of the elements of that. It's bombastic. Like it is in your ears when you're listening to it and it's relentless and it's I think there's like an infectiousness that that type of production brings out that is embedded in some of the maybe not hooks isn't the right term, but there's there is something in Alter that draws you out. And I think when we think of like heavy music, it is the the tempo of it to a certain extent. I agree. And thank you for that. <laughs> Land of Men, which is the second single that came out recently. Tell us a little bit about that song and the pairing of these two. They were written kind of close together, but Land of Men, I think, has been coming for a much longer time in my writing catalog. I mean, Land of Men is something that, first of all, if anybody has never heard of my band before, we live in Nashville, Tennessee. I am not from Nashville, but I live in a very music industry-centric town in a very conservative white male legislator led state. So I just want to, I want to frame that because the space that I'm in day to day is quite seriously the land of men, but also just, I mean, my life, it's hard for me to even contextualize every major league sport I look at on television. Everything I look at is won by men and populated by men. And it's so normalized that it's not even, and I want to specify cis men, of course, it's not even like a big feminist anthem as much as it is just like a fatigue that every single thing that I do in my life, everything I put forth is approved of or not by white cis men. And that's how it advances or it doesn't. And it just, some days I just have a hard time with it. Most days I have a hard time with the acceptance around that, even though it is my reality and I'm probably not going to do much to move the bar in my life. I just wanted to say it out loud that it is deeply tiring. And even in Nashville, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but Nashville is in this really weird space right now where the people in the music industry right around me all sort of consider themselves these sort of forward thinking progressive people. But that only extends to a couple of categories and the gender category is not one of them. And they don't want to hear about it. They don't want any pointers on it and they don't want to be corrected about it. So if you speak up, if you push back, even against these guys that sort of wear this like quasi-feminist badge, I mean, you will be put right back into fucking knock it off land. You know what I mean? Like, if you advance toward me, you will not be in my publication. You will not be, you know, I mean, truly, I mean, those threats are there. So it's tough. I had some questions about Nashville and, you know, since we're there, let's kind of go there. In heavy music, you know, we sometimes overlook Nashville as like pop world or country world. Pop country. Yeah. Even in the small sequestration of heavy music, we can't really ignore a place like that uh, just because of the force that it has on the industry in general. I think you painted like a pretty interesting sort of picture of what it's like there from a political standpoint and then from the bit players that are in the industry there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you see as people that 
imagine themselves as progressive? Is this just like in political affiliation where it's like a one-dimensional type of group affiliation, but not like a more holistic affiliation? So yes, of course, the people that I'm talking about, you know, they voted for Obama and they voted for Biden. So therefore, you know, in in the scope of Tennessee, that reads as like, I'm a Democrat. And it's like, of course, there are like 10,000 ways to be a Democrat, right? I mean, that's that's a big word. <laughs> so, just like there are 10,000 ways to be a feminist. Uh, that's a broad category. So there are those people. And what has become even more stark is that everybody wants to make sure that they come off as anti-racist. Of course, in the last you know year and a half, that has become very important for everybody to appear as though they're on the right side of understanding that Black Lives Matter and having representation and giving opportunity. But they skated right past gender. They did. They went right past gender and they do not want to look at it. And so it, it continues to be this bizarre kind of hypocritical space where inclusion and forward movement sort of only extends to certain brackets, but it is still managed and controlled by white men. So instead of it looking like those people having less of, of a stake and less power, it just looks like them being like sort of waving around these other flags and being like, but we like this and we put this person on the cover or we put this person in the in the thing. But at the top, it's still all white cis men. Yeah. So you're to sort of synthesize what you were saying, like there's a level of trivialization of some of these causes that occurs in the groups to where there's a particular selection made of a token of anti-racism or anti-feminism. And to a certain extent, one could interpret it as show. Yeah, and I certainly do because I don't see anything actually moving or actually changing. And I think that, you know, that's the metric by which we actually see anything modified. But, you know, releasing Land of Men is an absolutely bad idea where I live. I mean, I just, I just want to say that, like, it's not, it's not a, the best career move I've ever made. Um, and a lot of people wouldn't touch it because of that. But it's just like, I feel like, so to answer your sort of sub question within these questions, releasing Alter and Land of Men together to me means that I'm answering to what I believe in. And I'm answering to the version of myself that I honor at this time, which in a lot of cases is younger versions of myself that I threw under the proverbial bus, you know? And, you know, I want to have said what I said in Land of Men because I mean it and because I've lived it my entire life. And I don't want to make that smaller because it makes the white guys uncomfortable and they don't want to hear it. Frankly, I don't want to hear what they have to say either over there. So you know, <laughs> it's a stalemate. You know? <laughs> There's something that makes these two songs commercially challenging, and that is the directness of the message. And there's irony to that, those two songs not being commercial. But then if you look at the history of commercial protest songs being highly commercial, do you, do you see a similar sort of hypocrisy? And do you feel as though these songs fall into a different type of tradition of protest song? Or is that not even like the right sort of categorization? I'll say that I see a lot of people celebrating protest music that protests injustice of someone or something else. And I know something about that. You know, we I wrote and Friendship Commanders released a song a little over a year ago called Stone Child, which was about the murder of a Chippewa Cree man named Stonechild Chiefstick in Polesville, Washington. He, he was killed by white police in 2019. And um, 
that story came to me through a friend of mine who was close to his family and, and is part of the Suquamish community that he was Chippewa Cree, but he was in a partnership with a Suquamish woman and was part of that tribal community. And I got permission from that community and family to record that song because it's obviously, it does not belong to me. There was a Suquamish woman featured on the song, Cassie Fowler, who spoke in Lushitzid on behalf of the family. And what I will say is that I'm so glad that we recorded and released that song. And I will always be super grateful that we were allowed to do that. It was a huge honor to be able to represent that life and to make that protest. But I think that people really favor that kind of protest music where it's like, this is an injustice about someone else. And this is, and we can all get behind that. It it sort of goes back to this thing of this, like, we all agree that racism is bad. And so here's how we'll agree that racism is bad. You know, we'll accept this kind of protest music. But if you are a person who's like, I'm a woman and I've been treated like shit in the music industry for my literal entire life, (laughs) people are like, we don't want to hear it back to the other music about other people. I mean, truly that's, you know, so I think that protest music is like an interesting thing. I think it's often celebrated when it's made by white men, not to like, not to beat the same drum, but I think that what we consider famous protest music is often by white men. I don't know if those white men actually participate in protest reality. I have questions about that kind of thing, but I do think that if you are a person who's making protest music about stuff that you yourself experience in ways that you've been silenced and um, sort of pushed back against, it's harder to raise it. And it's certainly harder to raise it when everybody who would do so is of the other camp. Do you buy the argument that some make about the platform that these mainstream or highly accepted musicians offer? They offer a platform because of their stature for certain protest objectives through art, or is it disingenuous and actually perpetuating a bigger problem? I think it's case by case. You know, I think that in some cases, it probably is the right move. And then in other cases, I think it's totally cosmetic and just and problematic. But I do think it's probably case by case. Um, I was very, very nervous about releasing Stone Child, I will say, because I, I think it's important as a white person and a cisgendered white person of privilege to not co-opt the stories of people of color and be like, this was terrible. You know, that's no good at all. And I would not have released that song if a member of the community had not participated in it in some way, because then I think it's a conversation with instead of about. And I think that's important. I wanted to touch on that song. I was particularly struck when listening to it. And I thought there was a good sort of release date behind it and an idea of how to go about it. And so why was it sort of important for you to capture and share that story? Because it wasn't being shared. And I knew somebody who was devastated by that death and she was privately sharing with me what was happening as it was unfolding. The first that I heard about Stone Child's death was maybe nine or 10 months after it actually happened. The first I learned about it was last year. So he'd already been dead. He died on July 3rd, 2019. But I was hearing about the story through my friend Lynn Ferguson, who is a Suquamish woman and who lives out there. And she knows his kids and knows his partner. And she's the person through which my communication with the community happened. She was sharing with me privately their devastation around the racist handling of the killing in the first place. So it wasn't just that Stone Child was killed. For anybody that doesn't know the story, he was killed 
during a air quotes Independence Day celebration at a waterfront park in Pulsbo, Washington, filled with families and children. It happened on July 3rd because that's for whatever reason when they do that celebration in that particular community instead of July 4th. But it was Independence Day for them. And um, he was just killed by white police in front of everybody like in front of all the children. And so the death in the first place is horrific and nonsensical. And in the second place, there started to be all of these really racist vandalizations of his, it wasn't a gravesite, but it was like his, like the memorial structure to his death that the tribal community had erected. And it was coming from these local officials. It wasn't just coming from like kids in the park that didn't know what it was. I mean, it was like targeted systemic racist acts And then last summer, it was determined that the white police officer who actually killed him would not see any justice for it. And, you know, Lynn's devastation around it was palpable to me from Nashville. And I just, I did not decide to write that song. I don't think I would have ever decided to write that song, but I started to hear it weeks later. I started to hear the riff and the the story, the melody sort of presenting itself to me. And I thought, well, let me listen for a while and let me hear what it is. Let me see what how the song goes. And when it was enough of a song, you know, I wrote to Lynn about it. And I said, you know, I, I think my mind is writing this song about Stone Child. And what do you think about that? You know, let me just feel it out with one person. And she immediately said, I think it's wonderful. I would be so happy if you did that. And I said, really? Let me send these lyrics to you and see what you think, because I don't want to say anything. My whole thing around releasing Stone Child was I don't want to re-traumatize this community and this family. Like, I don't want to be, can't be like a snuff film of a song. You know what I mean? Where we just, where we tell the story of someone being murdered and who does it help, you know? But I didn't do that. I sort of just wrote around the circumstances of that day, you know, the visuals of that day. And and it ended up being a protest song and the questioning of like, why, why is this happening? And how can we repair this? And I don't know if you notice, I'm sure you've heard a few Friendship Commander songs. It is the only song in which I use that voice ever. I sing really softly. And that, that part was intentional so that I wasn't a white woman screaming on that song about that death. It was important for me to not be aggressive. That's an interesting point is that there's a particular sort of tone and intention with your voice that's different, but you described it as appropriate. I thought it as like pretty effective when you look at it in relation to the catalog and to what is around it, which is also your reign is over. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was another pairing of songs where I was like, here's one thing that's very intimate and very personal. And then here's this other statement that's sort of broader. <laughs> Same kind of thing as these newer singles. Do you find that doing these sort of like one-two punch singles is a more effective vehicle for what you're trying to communicate to people? Because I think the industry is concerned about the longevity of albums. And so there's been a big push for singles. And so now you can get yourself out there and your message like more frequently throughout the year. Um, How do you sort of feel about doing these like pairings of expression, I guess? I actually love it because it's kind of this like, just this capsule of expression that I think people can consume and and have the attention span and bandwidth for. The last thing that we released before these two sets of singles was a five-song EP called Hold On To Yourself in spring of last year. And five songs also felt good um, because there were five very different songs and it felt like a miniature catalog of like who we are and what we make and because we do make heavy slow music but we also tend to make a sort of thrashier fast music from time to time and so that five song set i thought was also a good 
batch to release. But what happened in the pandemic was that it just started to feel there was so much grief and so much everything just felt like running in sand. I'm sure for you and whoever's listening to this too, it just felt hard to get anything done. And there was just grief about what was not happening and not being done and 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 the deaths and the losses. So recording two songs and releasing them and being like, we're alive, we love you. We're hoping to connect with you on this human level through this music. It seemed doable for us spiritually, physically, financially, logistically. And then this time around, a similar thing happened where we had these two songs that we really loved and believed in. And we were like, do we hold on to them for this upcoming full-length record? Or do we just like shoot them into space and tell everybody we're here and we're thinking about them again? You know? Because the record won't come out till next year and it's not yet recorded. So we just chose to do it again. But once again, it is such a transitional time still, even though there's a lot that has reopened and has come back in person. It's not what I would call normal right now. (laughs) No, I think it it definitely is. Just look outside and you can see it's not normal. Yeah, it's not normal. (laughs) It just felt like a way to reach back out and say like, This is what we've been thinking and feeling. This is how we're doing and connect with the people that listen to us and pay attention to us and just put it forward. But I have loved it. Yeah. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Buick Audra in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra Presents shows at scorchedhunter.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things heavy hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life rating us, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Buick Audra. You know, how I sort of interpret these message and I guess we could say medium or like just sort of the mode that you're choosing with two songs is putting like a lot of confidence into these messages by saying, nah, you don't need eight, you need two. And this is what I'm giving you. And it's like micro and macro to a certain extent. It is micro and macro. It is. Yeah. And I, I, especially with these last two, I just felt like we crammed so much like, you know, intention and power and message into those two songs that any more than that might be a bit much, you know? But yeah, there is the personal and then there is the kind of political, um, again, in this duo. And, um, I like how they sit together and we've now played them in front of people a half a dozen times and it feels really cool. <laughs> That's incredible. So you talked a little bit about as of the sort of like the release date of this episode, you'll be in Massachusetts recording with Kurt Ballou. Seems like that's working out for you. Why him and now a third LP? What can you share at this point about all of that? So our history with Kurt is that we've now worked with him three times. He mixed Hold On To Yourself, Stone Child, Your Reign Is Over, and Alter in Land of Men, but we've never actually met him. So this will be our first time actually working with him in the studio and and tracking with him, which we intended to do much sooner, but life did not turn out as intended, right? So (laughs) this is is what it is. So we, as I'm speaking with you now, we're on tour for another, I don't know, week and a half. And then we're home for one night. And then we drive up to Massachusetts to make this record with him in person. 
And it is actually a record that I've written more or less about Massachusetts. I used to live in Massachusetts and um, it ha- it holds a huge history for me that I've never written about or even really talked much about, even though I lived there for a long time. And when we decided to go up there in person, the record just started to present itself as like this, almost like a memoir of those feelings, not really those stories, but those feelings of living there. And like the songs hold a lot of hope, but they also hold a lot of like, this was actually fucked and it's okay to leave. If you're in a fucked situation, you can leave. There are a couple songs that really get into that messaging, which I'm proud of because I, for whatever reason on social media, I see a lot of like, here's how to stay. Here's how to make everything work forever and, you know, work it out. And I essentially wrote a record on how to not make it work out. (laughs) Well, I I think that it's a, it's, it's a valid message to put out there because if you're in a situation that isn't really benefiting you or is harming you, there's no need to perpetuate that, right? Yeah, you can leave. And, uh, you know, I really, I say that in one of the songs. I say you can move, but it's it's essentially the same sort of idea. Um, but it is also heavy and it's, I wrote it in five different guitar tunings. So it's a big departure from what anybody's heard in the band so far, because I really, I just dove into all of these alternate tunings that are so delightful and dreamy to play. <laughs> Maybe it was all the time at home and not performing, thinking, oh, I can just do all these different tunings, not thinking about live consequences. Yeah, live consequences are going to be very real. And I'm going to have to reckon with that. Some of them are, I should clarify that like three of the songs are in drop D, which is a pretty easy tuning to, you know, to deal with on stage. And I'm doing it on this tour. I'm actually, so if you're seeing us on this tour, you're hearing a handful of the brand new songs that are not yet recorded because we're, you know, we're getting them ready. We're shaping them up. So... (laughs) You mentioned growing up in Massachusetts and you left. And can you kind of talk a little more about the process of revisiting and choosing something that's a little more like autobiographical instead of going broader with it as opposed to like critique? Sure, sure. So I'm actually from Miami and my mom moved back and forth between Boston a bunch in my adolescence. I went to five high schools in four years because of it, I just want to say, because it doesn't get said enough in the world that like adolescence, there's so much that we don't choose that's non-elective, you know? So I'm from one place and then I ended up moving back and forth to this other place that as a place is fine. It's not, there's nothing wrong with the place. I don't, I don't mean to rag on Massachusetts, but when you don't choose something and it enters your life in such a major player kind of way and continues to enter your life in such a major player kind of way, An interesting thing happened for me where I just kind of accepted life on the terms that I was given them. And I just ended up in living out these stories in my young adulthood that were actually pretty traumatizing and unchecked. You know, I I don't know if anybody listening to this can relate or you can relate, but sometimes things are traumatizing and you don't realize it until a hundred years later and you look back and you get new language around it and you get new frame, new eyeballs in about it. And you're like, wait a second, this was really a tough time. And I just put it over there in that drawer for the last 15 years, you know, and haven't really like watched it grow. When we decided to actually make this record in person with Baloo, it coincided with of the suicide of my old friend, Mark Orleans. And some musicians will know that name. Mark was a 
a loud, wild, dissonant guitar player who lived in Boston for a time. And I knew him when I was a teenager in Boston. He was in a band called Spore. And then he was in Sunburn, Hand of the Man. And he was like a really cool improv guy that played so loudly and so wildly. And I just really liked him. And we were friends. We worked at this art supply store together when I was in college. And I just loved him. And he died last year. And we already knew we were going up to make this record with Kurt. And um, something about revisiting those years with Mark alive after he died and knowing that I was going back up to Massachusetts where I don't any longer spend much time outside of one day of, of tour per year or whatever... It just made me open the drawer and look at my grief around Mark's death. And then, you know, grief, grief can sometimes be an ocean. If you look at one thing, you're suddenly looking at a bunch of stuff. And I don't want to give the impression that the record is just like a pile of grief because it's not. There's a lot of propulsion and, as I said, hope and forward movement in the record. But it's got some big stuff, some big sounds and big feelings. But it did make me kind of go back and be like, what happened? You know? And so I more or less wrote a record about it. And I, honestly, I don't know that if you listen to the record and who knows when it's out, we'll, we'll all look back on this conversation and see. But I don't know if anyone would be like, this is an autobiographical record about Massachusetts, but it is. <laughs> so- <laughs> you bring up a really interesting point about sort of revisiting the past or memories, but one with the advantage of hindsight and then with a broader experiential vocabulary with which to process those experiences. Yeah. In that way, it wasn't traumatizing to write the record. I guess I want to say that, that like by the time I got here, I was like, I guess I just want to tell these stories and give voice to these, to this knowledge, you know, that, and in a way also circle back to myself as I do an altar and be like, it's good you left. It's good you left. You know, like you made it out and you're okay. And other people feel free to also leave or not Massachusetts, but whatever it is, you know, I say at one point in the record, like if you're living in a chapter, you don't know how to leave, you will you will know at some point, like there's hope ahead and and you will have language around what you don't have language around now. And and I wish somebody had said that to me when I was younger, because there is a a point in young, like the twenties are just hell in the hallway, I think, or they were for me. I wish somebody had said like, this will get clearer, you know, (laughs) like this this will iron out a little bit and you will have more vocab, you know, you will have a lexicon around what's going on here. (laughs) Yeah. Hope, hope, you know, life is long and it's not all going to be this uh, confusing shit show, right? Yeah. That you didn't choose and that you're just, that you've sort of happened into, you know, that, that at some point in life, hopefully like choices get to be made and they get to outnumber the things that you were just handed. I guess I wanted to talk a little more about activism and who you've looked to and how that's changed over time. And I think kind of what you were just talking about made me think of this a little bit. And that is we look back in those moments of being in your twenties or in your teens, like you feel as though you have certain idols or people that you look to that may be inspirational or maybe someone that, for example, like when I was in my twenties, I looked to someone as more of like an oppositional person. But then in my thirties, I've realized that that was actually like a huge inspiration to me. It was more of an inspiration to not that became something interesting to think about. And so I wonder if you may entertain this, like when you look back and you look at sort of people that were inspirations, 
uh, maybe on the side of like activism and how that sort of changed over time for you? When I was really young, like when I was a teenager, I was like hugely inspired by, first of all, in a music context, I want to say that there were a lot of men in music sort of quasi-activist voices and spaces that I gave a lot of attention to. And that's fine. You know, I don't regret that, but those seasons have come and gone. But outside of music, I was really inspired by and really and so informed by HIV and AIDS activism and LGBTQ rights activism when I was growing up. It was so um, important to see how those movements happened. And I started participating in activism in my teens in the HIV and AIDS movement, which of course is like, has such a different presence in the culture today. It doesn't, it's wild. It like doesn't really get talked about in the same ways that it once did. It's not, it somehow seems not urgent anymore. (laughs) I don't know why that is, but we haven't figured that out. And there's still a lot of stigma and I could talk about that for years and years and years. But as I've aged, you know, I've really had to learn about, you know, my place as a white person and as a person of privilege and obviously deferring to... So instead of just being out in the world, like getting behind other people and learning how to be... It's been very important for me to learn how to be one of many in activist spaces and to follow like Mm -hmm. trans women and women of color and people whose movements are about their lives and deaths and for me to serve those movements instead of I think we have a lot of white women sort of who want to be leaders of everything. And I know that feeling, but I also know that that's not, that's not my space. That like what I need to do is listen more and support the work of indigenous activists and people who are having a completely different experience on earth than I am. While also speaking up about the weird crap that I experience, which I do in my music, obviously. But yeah, I've had to get right-sized and get humble and broaden my activism as I've gotten older. And it's been also like important for me to understand my motivation around activism. Like activism doesn't have to be visible to be activism, right? Like I don't have to be like, like getting attention for what I'm doing or drawing attention to an issue for it to have validity. Like I can participate and I can go to bed at night and know that I did my part. You know, it's like... Like, again, as a white person, I really don't need to take up space as an activist um, unless the the point is to, you know, again, to circle back to Stonechild, I was like, nobody in the country outside of Washington and even in Washington is talking about this. And that seemed highly fucked and also highly common and that like an indigenous person would be killed in front of an entire community of people and like it would run in one local paper and that's it and get no national news. Raising awareness for that was important to me. The song actually did do that and I'm proud of that. But outside of that, it is not my job to like jump into spaces that are being well handled and managed by POC people and be like, I'm here to lead the way. (laughs) And, you know, as a woman, I don't want white men to lead the way in my spaces. For sure not, you know, like with bodily autonomy rights and these types of things. You know, I tell my my white dude friends all the time, I'm like, guys, like you can't be in charge of the movement. You are, you have to get in the back of the line. <laughs> Help us. But you're not, a, you're not the manager of the movement. <laughs> in 2020 and 2021, there are a lot of white cisgender males such as myself that do want to 
do better or to be able to help people have a voice in some way. I mean, how can we do that or how can we help while being respectful? Elevate the the voices and the work of people who are already doing it, for sure. You like, you know, elevate the boots on the ground organizations that are already doing that, which are usually being led by women of color, let's just be honest. And also, I'm just speaking specifically to the bodily autonomy movement, which is like, you know, under such constant attack and threat right now, obviously, with this like Texas law and with Mississippi trying to overturn Roe in the Supreme Court right now. I want to say this to every person that I know, not just white cisgendered men, that the language has to be broader. We cannot just talk about it as a women's rights thing. We have to talk about it as something that affects non-binary and transmasculine people as well. Like we have updated our information and the language has to follow, you know, because I, I feel like the transmasculine and non-binary community have been loud and vocal about you are excluding us from this situation that is very much about us and is very anti-trans. And not everybody is getting that memo. So anytime I have, thank you for giving me this opportunity to say that, but we have to not just make it about, it's people with uteruses and that's the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's people with uteruses. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that for listeners, because I've actually gotten a lot of feedback from listeners who observe that there's a big disparity and basically favor to white cisgender males in the, we could talk about that in society, but talking about the entertainment industry specifically, let's, we can narrow to that and in heavy music as well too. And I guess they and I you know, were kind of curious as to how we flip that. And it's not, you don't flip a switch overnight of what is the course of human history. But I think one of the things is we've talked a little bit about what people can do to elevate voices, but Is there something that we can also do with our commercial activity if we're talking about an industry as well? In discussions, we've talked about like different music events. Okay, BIPOC people are totally underrepresented in heavy music events, for example, looking at the rosters on labels too a lot. And, you know, if we were to probably take a look at the number of people that even feel like they can enter that category of heavy music, there could be because of the barriers that exist, people may not even feel confident to put music out there because of all of the collective experience that says, no, you're not good enough to do that, or no, you're not going to be accepted in this space. What I would say, and really what Land of Men speaks to is like, put those people in the position of choosing in the first place. Like if someone is booking a festival and is like, we'd like to be more gender inclusive, we'd like to be more you know, racially inclusive, whatever, whatever the the things are, whatever the sort of parameters are that we're talking about. Like I really wear out on like, like just speaking from a gender perspective, like I saw all of these guy friends of mine and I'm not going to name any of them, but they fucking know who they are. You know, earlier in the year when, when festivals came back, when heavy music festivals came back sharing like so proud, you know, of such and such white guy for booking this fantastic festival. And I looked at those festival lineups and I messaged my friends who were playing them. And I was like, it's literally all white men. (laughs) There is not one other kind of person on that festival. It shows, 
that a, just a white guy booked this that didn't consult any other kind of person. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I feel like when these things are even being put together, it's like, bring in some women, bring in some women of color, bring in some people, whatever it is, people of color to say like, how can we better organize this? So it isn't just like 30 white guy bands. And then we pretend that we're doing a great job. You're not doing a great job. And I don't mean to be a dick, but like, it is offensive to see it. And it is offensive for people to act like it's some heroic feat to ask 30 white guy band. That's just 1987. That's all that is. That's not new. You're not using any of your new tools. <laughs> you can donate to Planned Parenthood and still be doing that and you're not nailing it. You know what I mean? No, thank you. I think you definitely grasped onto what I was throwing out there. So thank you for that. And I guess there's, how do we sort of confront that? I mean, I organize music events and it's something that I think about is I want to be able to be inviting for people because not only there's a commercial value to it, you want everyone to come because you want everyone to have an opportunity to participate and there's social and financial benefits for it. I guess the thing that I think about when I look at larger organizers in that case is if they are favoring a, a specific audience like very heavily, is there a benefit to not going to those places? Say if you're a musician such as yourself, is there a benefit to not going there or to going there and having a dialogue with the audience directly? I think both are fine, but I think more than anything, like it's important to be communicating to the bands themselves. Like this, you are not participating, which is what I did. I was like, you are not participating in a line that's moving. You are participating in sameness and you are benefiting from it. And you are not giving a shit about anybody else who's not being included. And I don't do it to shame, but honestly, those guys didn't even notice. They literally just, they just looked at the roster and were like, great. These are all guys we know. It's going to be a sick festival. They didn't even think about it. They don't have to think about it. You know, communicating to the people that you know that are booking those types of things or to the people who are participating in playing them. I'm not trying to convince anybody to boycott anything at all. I'm just saying like, People need to be bringing in other kinds of people to help them book them. You can't just put one band with one woman bass player on the bill and be like, we did it. There's one person with a uterus playing. Like, we got it. We nailed inclusiveness, you know? And believe me when I tell you, some of them did that after I spoke up. And it's... Yeah, you can't hang a mission accomplished yeah, banner over that, right? <laughs> Because again, it's like, it's still just a bunch of guys deciding. So it's like, put yourself in the uncomfortable position of deferring to somebody else and collaborating and seeing what comes of it. Because honestly, when we're speaking about catering to these audiences that are used to getting what they get, they might not know that anything else is available because so much of what they are fed by the industries that they participate in is the same shit. Going back to these recent singles, Alter and Land of Men, you were talking about this being a challenging commercial decision from a perspective of labels aren't going to be attracted to this or the like conventional mechanisms of the industry may take issue to it. For someone that may not know much about the entertainment industry, why do you think that it was seen as not really a great career decision, I guess? Land of Men, I'm, I'm truly speaking like about some of the people that would have to give a green light to this music in the first place. I mean, I know some of them passed on it and some of them were just like, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it's also interesting because in heavy music, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of people just don't even listen to lyrics. And they don't care. It's the vibe of the music that hits them. And they're like, this is super heavy. You know, it's a heavy song. And so 
the songs have only been out as we're talking like 12 days or something. They haven't been out terribly long. So it still remains to be seen how they do. Land of Men was immediately added to all of these big heavy playlists, like without us doing a bunch of work around it. And I think it's because you know, whatever notifications happened that we released were, they heard that one and that was the one that they picked. They don't even care what the name of the song is or what the words are about. And also not everybody who listens to heavy music speaks English. (laughs) There are huge heavy music fans in all over Europe and of course in South America. And, you know, I mean, it's like, there's a whole other scene, um, many scenes. So it's funny, like, you know, I put all this gravity into the messaging and then it's like, they're just like, they just love the riff or the feel or the the vibe of the whole recording or the mix or whatever, you know, as far as like the people that would give me press about it or any, or that kind of stuff, you know, the people that would dig deeper and do a lyric dive. And also we made like a kind of heavy handed lyric video for the song. <laughs> yes, a, you did. There's <laughs> no sitting on a fence with it. Yeah. It's pretty straight. I always say that, that Jerry got that great footage of me as the witch with the cauldron. <laughs> <laughs> There's but, no yeah. missing the lyrics there. If, if, uh, if you were concerned about people not knowing the lyrics. Yeah. No, there they are. Yeah. But I'm also, like I said, like, I just want to have said it. I want someone to have said it, you know? And also just circling back, like the whole thing about privilege. I mean, that's what the chorus is about. The reason I wrote the song finally once and for all is that I was on this conference this summer and, and this, this old white guy was talking about his career in film or something. And he was like, yeah, we did pretty well for ourselves. And he's kind of, uh, uh, uh. and I just thought like, this man has never ever in his life had to consider ever for any reason that it went well, that he set out with a bunch of other guys that looked like him and they formed a film company and a huge film company. I mean, this guy like matters in the film world. And they just did what they did and the doors opened and everything worked out. And now he just tells these sort of chuckle worthy stories on these conferences, you know? And and I was like, this is such a type. This is such a reality that this person does not know that the reason that the doors open for him is because they are closed to so many other people. We are not all competing on the same field. We are not all living on that terrain, man. Buk, it's been a pleasure having you on Heavy Hops. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience here? Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for trying out our music. And thank you for interviewing me and asking all these thought-provoking questions because you've actually made me have to dig into my skull a little bit (laughs) and work here, which I appreciate. But yeah, no, just give other people in music a shot, not just me, but just give other people in music a shot and uh, keep your mind open because there are a lot of people making really rad music out in the world right now that are not on the same on the field. That's a great remark. If you're here, you've got it in you. Just be open-minded, right? Indeed. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you.